Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Hi everyone, my name is John McGad and welcome to Stick to Wrestling. Uh, this is a podcast about classic wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, usually. And today we're going to talk a little bit about 1983 Georgia Championship Wrestling. But before I get rolling on that, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook group. It's free, it's fun, lots of good conversation, and we take questions from the listeners. Um, also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just follow John McAdam. Uh, just put in the words John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And before I get to the uh, the Georgia 1983, we took some questions about SummerSlam 88. We had the podcast about that last week, and um, we just didn't have time to, to get to the questions, so I'll answer a few. Uh, let me see. We have a good one here. Who should have replaced superstar Billy Graham as the color commentator at SummerSlam? And Harry Pierce says, how about Art? How much does that guy weigh Donovan? <laughs> we absolutely should have done a 30th anniversary of the 1993 King of the Ring tournament. Maybe we'll get to that at some point. That was actually a good show by 1993 WWF standards. Um, Jamie Waldrop. Asked, why do you think Bad News Brown never got a legit push? He had a little run with Hogan, but I, I had him pegged at minimum as at least intercontinental champion. Jamie, I, I liked Bad News Brown. Um, I actually sent his wife tapes of him, and she wrote back to me laughing that, oh, my gosh, he had hair. I was like, well, of course he had hair at one point in his life. But anyway, I think Bad News Brown pretty much got the push that he should have gotten. I mean, at what point really should he have been Intercontinental Champion? I mean, he, in 1988, he debuted right, right before SummerSlam. And at SummerSlam, they put the Intercontinental Championship on Ultimate Warrior. I just don't see the point where Bad News Brown was ever a better choice as Intercontinental Champion than Bad News Brown. So I, I like I said, I, I'm glad he got that push. But at the same time, I think, you know, he he pretty much got what he should have gotten, in my opinion. Jonathan McDonald asked, are we fortunate to have avoided a Ric Flair WWF debut here? In my opinion, absolutely. Yes. Number one, it would have been catastrophic. For the NWA. I mean, that r might have put them under. Um, and number two, I think the, the timing would have been poor for the WWF. I mean, they were going to do, as a matter of fact, uh, we were asked by someone else, you know, would had Ric Flair come in, would they have benched? the Hogan Savage program. I don't think so. I think they were going with Hogan Savage and, and Flair would not have gotten the push he got in 1991. Um, Wesley Lobert asked, was Ultimate Warrior taking the title from Honky Tonk Man, the greatest match ever that went under a minute? I can't think of a better one. <laughs> um, Dan Potts, why not have Rude versus Jake on the card? Um, and was Roddy Piper legit considered as the ref for the main event? Um, I don't think Piper was considered for the main event. Um, I think it was Jesse all the way. I think Jesse was the best choice, um, especially, you know, you've got the heel ref 
thing suggested, and I think that that drew people in. Um, as far as having Jake versus Rude on the show, they had just started that angle, so I think they would have been rushing things a little bit. Uh, Justin Brown asked, I see Bulldogs versus Rougeau's on the card. When did you first hear about the Jacques Rougeau versus Dynamite Kid incident? A friend of mine called me, and he said, hey, I heard Jacques Rougeau knocked a few of Dynamite Kid's teeth out. I was like, what? And then, like, it got confirmed, and then I heard the real story as far as, you know, Jacques Rougeau suckering him with a roll of coins and all that. Now I can see it. Um, And last one, let me see. What what did Honky Tonk Man do? Let's talk access this. To keep the Intercontinental title for so long after refusing to lose for Macho Man before WrestleMania 4, it seemed as if his punishment was work off, working often against Savage, Hogan, and San Martino on main events. Honky Tonk Man never got the, pro- the program with Hogan. I think he got a total of one match, which I was actually at for a Saturday Night's Made event taping. Uh, San Martino was long retired by that point. He had a few six-mans against Bruno in 1987, but that was before Honky Tonk Man refused to lose the title on NBC. And he, he was mostly working against Brutus Beefcake uh, during that summer. And at the time... I was saying, okay, well, if Honky Tonk Man refuses to lose to Savage on NBC, he's going to find himself in a long, painful program against Brad Rankins or someone like that. And then, you know what, I guess as I've gotten older, I feel like, you know, there's just no point in being petty like that. You, You know, he did what he did. We move on. He his big push was over by that point anyway. I mean, the Intercontinental Championship usually was not a main event title all right on to uh georgia championship wrestling from 1983 the summer of 1983 um i've got a whole lot of rare audio to share with you and i'm going to share some observations i personally think this was a really bad time for georgia and I've had people say to me, um, you know, oh, you should just watch it and enjoy it and don't worry about what the newsletters say. Look, summer of 1983, I was 18 years old. I was not getting any newsletters. I got the After Magazines, which openly cheerled the Georgia promotion. They were, you know, I mean, the war was about to start. The magazines had been kicked out of ringside by the WWF. No more pictures for you guys. So they totally got behind the Georgia promotion, and that's what was influencing me. And I could still tell that things were just all wrong in Georgia Championship Wrestling. They were pushing guys like Larry Zabisco. It's fine to push him if he's part of a stable of other good wrestlers, but your number two guy is Killer Brooks, who I just never bought as a top guy. And then you had Mr. Wrestling 2, who was a legend, but he was getting older, noticeably. You could see it. Even the mask couldn't hide it anymore. Uh, Tommy Rich had noticeably put put on weight. You know, no more Freebirds, no more Paul Orndorff, uh, et cetera, no more Samoans. And it, it just took a real step down, and I couldn't help but notice. But that's what we're going to review, and I'm going to try to keep it positive yet honest. And, of course, anytime we use audio here on Stick to Wrestling, it's for review purposes only. Let's hear Gordon Soley. Addressed by the referee for his late arrival. Zabisco, of course, is the man who, uh, in a sense, is responsible for this big national uh, tournament. 
He was the one who paid Killer Brooks $25,000 for the title. And uh, oddly enough, of course, the winner of that tournament will pick up $25,000 in cash. So Gordon explains the title, the uh, angle, probably better than I could. Larry Zabisco openly offered Killer Brooks $25,000 to win the national championship from Paul Orndorff and then hand him over the belt. They did this, which right away I, I was watching. I'm like, this is absurd. You cannot sell a championship. But then Zabisco has the title and is defending the title for five or six weeks. And then Bob Geigel suddenly shows up on Georgia Championship Wrestling, or now known as World Championship Wrestling, and strips Larry Zabisco of the national championship, saying, well, you never won the belt, you can't do that. It took him six, it took them six weeks to do this. It was a funny angle. I wish I had the audio of it, but Larry was very convincing in his whining that he paid $25,000 for the belt and Brooks had already spent the money. But in a odd twist, they had a tournament for the National Heavyweight Championship, which was won by Larry Zabisco. Let's hear from Larry Zabisco discussing that tournament. You know, let me say something, people. Tomorrow is Sunday. Sunday at the Omni. Larry Zabisco is going to show you people what it's all about. Not only am I going to get the National Heavyweight Championship, I'm going to get every penny back that I've invested in this stupid thing. The legend is going to show up Sunday at tomorrow at the Omni. And y'all start just get ready to cry, baby, because I'm getting it all. Great, Mr. Great interview by Zabisco, and he calls the shot. He won the National Heavyweight Championship. This might have been peak Larry Zabisco, and I'm aware of the Bruno Sammartino angle that they ran three years earlier. Um, but Larry, was he always kind of had that side feud with Bruno. It wasn't about him going after Bob Backlund, at least. He went after Backlund once at Madison Square Garden. It was the only time Backlund lost a match and never got a rematch back with a with a heel. Um, but they put Larry front and center, and he did a really good job. Again, I thought the promotion was down, but Zabisco held up his end. Uh, another man, another reason why I was down on Georgia in '83. They pushed one of the worst feuds of the decade. And I'm not talking about Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer, although by summer of 83, we were so tired of that feud. Ole Anderson against Paul Ellering. I mean, just something that I personally did not want to see. Uh, I I should underline, too, that I watched, you know, it didn't drive me away. I watched it every week. I made sure at 6.05 on Saturday I was in front of my television, so I was still enjoying it enough. But I was never drawn in by the Paul Ellering Ole Anderson feud. I never thought much of Paul Ellering as a manager. But with that, uh, Paul Ellering is managing the world television champion, the Iron Sheik. Let's hear from Ellering and the Iron Sheik. Some people here, too. That's right, standing before you right now is the proculator of doom, despair, and destruction. And soon the whole world, from Mexico City to New York City to Minneapolis, will all feel the wrath of precious Paul. For I am assembling, and I just have in mind two individuals at this moment 
who come from the baddest city of all. They come from Chicago, and they are indeed the monsters of the Midway. Now, Ole Anderson, to quote Mark Twain, everybody talks about the weather but nobody does anything about it. You talk, Ole Anderson, but you don't do anything about it. Listen now, because your day is gone, Ole. It's time to hang up the boots and go back to the farm. Is Thank it- you very much. Here's a special you miss seeing Gordon Soley's face. Throughout this interview, Gordon is just, you know, showing his contempt for Paul Ellering and shaking his head. We kind of miss that, but, you know, Gordon was great at what he did. That interview Ellering did did not exactly want me to go out and buy a ticket to see anything. And all, by this point, you know, Paul Ellering is a manager, obviously. Ole Anderson is a part-time, semi-retired pro wrestler and we're taking up all kinds of TV with these two talking about each other. Once again, you want to join the Facebook group because I took some questions about Georgia Championship Wrestling from the summer of 1983. Jerry Joy asks, How quickly did you realize that the Road Warriors were changing the landscape of wrestling? Jerry, it took me too long. <laughs> I mean, I, I I know people who ran wrestling schools, were in wrestling schools in the 80s, and everyone wanted to be either Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, or one of the Road Warriors. So they changed everything really quickly. Uh, the Road Warriors made a, a quick debut. Uh, this is another thing that went wrong with Georgia Championship Wrestling. The Samoans left for the WWF. November 1982, and they never dropped the uh, the national tag team ch- titles. So Georgia spends the first half of 1983 prepping up the team of Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne as the they're going to be the new national tag team champions, and they're talking about some upcoming tournament. And I know I've said this before. It sounds good. Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne, no, they were terrible. Arn Anderson was not ready, and they just didn't gel together. And to make things worse, Matt Bourne got himself arrested in Ohio for something that was not very good. And he was quickly gone from the scene. And one day, the Road Warriors show up. As the new national tag team champions, they won a fictitious tournament somewhere. So, again, more booking problems, but the Road Warriors immediately made a splash. These guys came on TV, and you're just like, wow, who are these guys? They're very big, very big, very athletic, and very scary. All right, now, more audio. This is Larry Zabisco after he wins the national championship. Especially the young man, he realized and noticed and pointed out that it was an exciting evening. May I introduce at this time, ladies and gentlemen, the new national heavyweight champion, Larry Zabisco. I might point out that uh, a new belt will be presented to him at a later date. I want a new However, uh, there was a rematch clause, and so uh, contrary to uh, a lot of things, Mr. Wrestling 2 will be back after you end Mr. that Mr. Wrestling, though. number two, I heard some rumors, and the rumors I hear, Gord, he might not be there at all. Well, no, Steve, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised yeah. if you were the kind of person who started that. Mr. Wrestling, wrestling 2 will be Let back for that final match. Let me just something about this. I want everybody to understand exactly what happened. You know, there is justice in this world, and people are rewarded who work hard enough. 
Sometimes, though, Gordon, it takes a legend to make it happen. I told you people what I was when I came here. You didn't believe me. Well, I, now I proved it to you. I beat the superstar. I beat Hanson. I beat wrestler number two. I beat them all. I beat them everywhere. You know, in New York, Bruno San Martino was invincible. I put him out of wrestling. In Japan, it was Anoki. Name a place, name a person, Gordon, the living legend, and the one and the only national heavyweight champion, Larry Zabisco. He did it again. He's going to reign forever, people. And don't you ever forget that. You know, there's a lot of people, Gordon, made fun of me, laughed at me. Where's the belt, Larry? Larry, where's the money? I got something to say to them. To those people, I have the belt. And you know what, for a bonus, after all the trouble Bob Geigel and Tommy Rich and Orndorff and the rest of the losers went through, didn't cost Larry Zabisco a dime. So I want to thank you, Mr. Geigel. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, everybody that participated in that tournament. God bless you all. And thanks for the money, Bob. Bye. Great heel interview by Larry Zabisco that he right now came out ahead. Uh, it turned out that he benefited from Bob Geigel stripping him of the title. And unfortunately for, for Larry, uh, forever lasted six weeks, which once again makes no sense. They put in, in all that time building up that angle, building up the tournament, and Mr. Wrestling 2 wins the national championship 42 days later. But anyway, let's take another question. Uh, Pete Pingle asks, Tommy Rich was still really over at the time. If he could have broken away, broken away from the never-ending Buzz Sawyer feud, could he have been a threat to Ric Flair or had a run with another promotion? Well, first of all, he was still really over, but he wasn't as over as he had been previously. And, and Pete's right. I mean, Tommy Rich had been in Georgia since either late 77 or early 1978. Uh, he took a brief break to go to Memphis in 1980, but he had been in Georgia more or less the whole time ever since then. And every babyface has that that shelf life as far as a, a run at the top. And Tommy Rich is getting near the end of his. And could he have gone to another promotion and succeeded? I think absolutely, maybe, yes. Um, if it was 1981 or 1982, absolutely. I think he would have been a sensation in the Carolinas or Florida, you know, world-class wouldn't have used him because, you know, he would have been a threat to the Von Erics, but anywhere else, I mean, he could have been, I, I have, I have stated over the years, I've had people say Tommy Rich would not have gotten over in the Northeast. Those people, in my opinion, are wrong. 1980, 1981, Tommy Rich would have been huge in the WWF. And for people who say he's too Southern, people up here liked that. And I know I've mentioned this on the show before, but people got into the whole Southern thing in the early 80s in Metro Boston. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. And Tommy Rich, you know, with it, he had charisma, he had looks. I think he would have gone over, gotten over practically anywhere he went. Now, one thing that was mentioned is his never-ending feud with Buzz Sawyer. You will sometimes read about, you know, what a great legendary feud Tommy Richards with Buzz Sawyer was. Not in my opinion. This had been going on on and off since 1981. It's now summer of 1983. 
and they're still running Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer out there. The last battle of Atlanta is fondly remembered, and I watched it when it came out on WWE Network maybe seven or eight years ago. I was pleasantly surprised by how good the match was. I thought it was like a three, three and a quarter star match, which again, I guess that's low expectations. But um, by that point, it, the whole thing seemed convoluted because it was obvious Buzz Sawyer was turning babyface, and they were just getting one last Tommy Rich versus Buzz Sawyer uh, match out there. But anyway, let's hear from Buzz Sawyer. Once again, anytime we use audio here, it is for review purposes. Buzz Sawyer, everyone. Dr. Walter Mazakane, a speedy recovery. Well, Mr. Sawyer. Murdoch! There comes the time for even the redneck, for even the people that serve their patriotic duty. There comes the time for Sawyer on my knees. I'm begging you, redneck. I'm begging you because somebody, somebody's got you. Somebody's got you. Buzz Sawyer had talent. He was a good in-ring performer. He had a power slam that was scintillating. But he was small. Uh, He was short in stature. He was actually all blown up by 1983. Actually, he was all blown up by 1981. But he was short in stature. And that interview he just did, if you watch Georgia Championship Wrestling on Saturday morning, on Saturday night, and Sunday night, as I usually did, you heard three or four of that exact same interview that you just heard. And I guess it works if he's out of control once or twice, but if he does it every week, you just stop listening to him. So there's a reason why Buzz Sawyer really didn't get over anywhere except Georgia. Now let's hear an interview from Mr. Wrestling 2, who is at the Omni with Freddie Miller. We're here at the Omni with Mr. Wrestling number two after the fans have left and there's a lot still burning on his mind. I know you're after Larry Zabisco, Mr. Wrestling number two, in the worst kind of way. Let me tell you something. You know, I have never been humiliated so much in all my entire life. I'm standing here with a knot on my head with a man that walked out and claimed that he is the number one man with the strap. Well, let me tell you, all I want is a return match. I want an opportunity to wrestle this man again, and let's see who is the better man. Man for man, no walking around, no one go anywhere, stay in the ring, and let's see who can stand the longest. Well, I know how you feel. You don't know nothing. I'm the one standing here with a knot on my head. I'm the one that's been embarrassed. How can you know how I feel? You tell me that. I'm the only one knows how I feel. And what I'm telling you is that I want a rematch with this man any way, shape, or form. 
I actually remember watching that interview live, and Freddie Miller, I know how you feel. And Stu's like, shut up. No, you don't. He's, he's all pissed off. Great interview by Mr. Wrestling, too. Once again, I mean, Father Time remains undefeated, and I believe Mr. Wrestling, too, was in his 50s at this point. And even, once again, even wearing a mask and wearing a suit was not hiding that. All right, now let's hear from one of the greatest interviews of all time. See, I said something nice about him, Ole Anderson. He's got the cheek, but Ellering, I'll tell you this, it's like Garvin said. Wrestle me, wrestle Garvin. We're on tour. Wherever we might be, you stick your nose in, we're going to punch it. Finally, we're going to get you in the ring. Whether it's me again or whether it's Garvin or anybody else, I'm going to tell you this. One way or another, we're going to run you out because the people of America aren't going to stand for a guy like you and your sheik and that bunch of dogs you run with. You get ready because there's going to be lots of people gunning for you, Ellering. You'd better get ready to pack your bag and leave town. Tracy Storm. Yep, lots of Ole versus Ellering talk every single week. But and I, I, once again, I thought Ole was one of the greatest talkers in the history of the business. So, and he was a great worker too. I just didn't think he was a very good promoter, and I'm not crazy about his uh, his post uh, career. Uh, was it persona? And I didn't like his book either. But anyway, let's hear another. Let's take another question, Sean Ryan. Was Georgia's expansion into Ohio a sandbag, and should they have pulled out by 1983? Sean, they were talking about moving the office to Ohio. They were doing better gates in Ohio and Michigan than they were the traditional Georgia towns. I mean, it was Georgia, not Georgia, Ohio and Michigan had not had Major League Wrestling for a long time. Uh, even in the 70s, I mean, the Sheik's promotion was slowly going down the, the drain, and I think it was a fresh new look for that ter- for that region. So, yeah, they, they did really well there to the point where Ole was considering moving the office from Atlanta to either Cleveland or Cincinnati. And with that, let's hear another interview. We've got Stan Hansen and Tommy Rich. In Atlanta, tomorrow night, one of the sensational nights in history, and I have Sam Hansen here with me now. Hey, first of all, let me tell you something. Ole Anderson's back there, and I don't know how bad he's hurt, and I don't know where it's going to be. The precious call, you bring those road hogs, them sweat hogs, or those road warriors, whatever they are, you bring them because I personally am going to take care of something. I'm personally going to do it, and I know Tommy feels the same way. You bring those road warriors on, I swear to God, somewhere down the road, I'm going to get a hold of Georgia, those guys. Atlanta, Georgia, that's where it's happening. Ole's going to be ready, Stan's going to be ready. And I'm going to be sitting right. in that corner, Stan. You I bring them on down to Tommy. Tomorrow night. That took place right now. You notice Freddie Miller is at the podium where he usually is not. Uh, he took Ole Anderson's place after the Road Warriors attacked Ole Anderson, which led to a match in, in the Omni. Uh, let me see, June 7th, excuse me, July 3rd, 1983. The main event, well, one of the main events was Ole Anderson, Stan Hansen, and Tommy Rich against the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering. So put more TV time into that. But with that said, uh, let's hear from another legend, Dick Murdoch. You and Sawyer, who's really in town? You know, you can buy the people that are going to buzz Sawyer's little snotty nose cheering section. Hollering, we won't buzz. Well, tomorrow night, you're going to get buzz Sawyer. And I'll guarantee you all, we have to leave. Maybe you people like to buy his lunch. Because Dick Murdoch loves World Championship Wrestling. I love being here. I love being a part of it. 
And tomorrow night, it's going to be bigger stuff. Lose or lose. Tomorrow night, 8.30, the Omni. Yep, they had a Buzz Sawyer versus Dick Murdoch loser leave town match, which at the time I didn't realize was a Dick Murdoch is going back to Japan match. Um, Dick Murdoch didn't get over with me when I was younger. I just never thought much of him because I didn't get to see his best stuff until I started trading tapes. But Dick, I didn't understand that he made big money in Japan and he was over like crazy in Japan. I only saw him when he would occasionally show up in Georgia for a few months, like he did here uh, in JCP, like he was in and out of 86, 87 and 88. And that, you know, to me, he just didn't appeal to me. And like I said, it was because he was over in Japan, and they didn't really report that in the wrestling magazines. Now, speaking of legends, Dusty Rhodes was in and out of Georgia, and I always loved it when he made an appearance on uh, World Championship Wrestling or Georgia Championship Wrestling. For review purposes, of course, let's hear from Dusty Rhodes. A real pleasure to welcome back to World Championship Wrestling uh, the American Dream himself. Dusty Rhodes and Mr. Sawyerson's conspicuous by his absence. God, I've been away for a while, but now I'm back. The American Dream is town power. Buzz Sawyer, you ran off. Dick Murder. Now then, you gotta deal with these. These knuckle sandwiches. You gotta deal with these. Whether it be Big Dad at Bundy or the Road Warriors. You know what I heard about the road warriors? I heard their mama was lazy and no cow. That's what I heard. But Sawyer, anywhere you want it, anytime you want it, you know, I can get just as bad. I can be a mad dog, too. <laughs> because in the end, worldwide wrestling going all over the universe are going to know that I'm just as sweet as I ever was. I have no idea what Dusty Rhodes called the Road Warriors' mother. It sounds like a lazy old cow, but I'm not 100% sure. But Gordon put on quite a face after those words came out of Dusty's mouth. Dusty was right around now exiting his prime, but as you can tell, he was over like crazy with the audience. He was over like crazy with me. I was a big Dusty Rhodes fan. Once again, until he started getting older and his JCP push just got kind of worn out with me. And yes, I will admit that knowing about Dusty through the newsletters, his booking, his ego, etc., had an impact on me as well question from Christian Alt. When did the promotion become too Southern? I don't think it ever did. And I know there was always talk about, you know, when, when Turner took over, they wanted to make the promotion less Southern. And I never really understood that. I always thought that was part of the appeal of Georgia Championship Wrestling. And I'll say this, you know, back in 1983, we still had the show Hee Haw, right? Running in syndication. I, as If that even came on for a second, I'd be like, turn that redneck garbage off. I never felt that way about Georgia Championship Wrestling. But some of the executives, after it got taken over, felt that way about it, unfortunately. Now... I think right around this time, right around August, September of 1983, the promotion started making 
a dramatic improvement. And the one-man improvement, it wasn't just one guy, but the guy who made the biggest difference was Ted DiBiase returning to Georgia Championship Wrestling as a heel. He had been a babyface, a big-time babyface there in 1980 and 1981. And then he turned in Mid-South Wrestling and never looked back. And when he came back to Georgia in 1983, he was one of the bad guys. A big shock to some people in Georgia. Let's hear from Ted DiBiase. Where is Tommy Rich, Gordon Soley? I'll tell you where he is. He's in the back there somewhere with an ice pack on his head. I told you, Gordon, and I told all you people out there that I was back, and I was back for business. And what you saw here today was just a small example of what I'm talking about. I heard everybody out here talking about who they're going to run out of town. Dusty Rhodes out here chucking and jiving about this and that. Well, you are looking at the man that you've got to deal with in World Championship Wrestling. This wrestling's going everywhere. It's going to Chattanooga. It's going to Marietta. It's going to Cincinnati. In my opinion, Ted DiBiase... In 1982, 1983, 84, into 85, was the greatest heel I'd ever seen. I'm not not million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, but this, the Mid-South slash Georgia version of Ted DiBiase. The best heel I've ever seen. Anyway, I'll take another question. Um, Jamie Ward wanted to ask, if the Georgia slash Southwest Alliance had worked, what would have been the ultimate outcome with the WWF? Well, first of all, there's there's a reason why that that alliance lasted a week or two at most. Um, it's just really hard for promotions to work together. Even when Vince McMahon was threatening everyone's existence, it was nearly impossible for everyone to work together. But even if that had been successful, nothing would have changed. Vince McMahon would have run over an Ole Anderson, Joe Blanchard alliance. I have always felt like wrestling history would have changed had it been Bill Watts and not Jim Crockett who got that WTBS slot in 1985. Um, nothing against Jim Crockett Jr. They had a great run for a while. But Bill Watts, Jim Crockett was kind of, okay, well, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to let Vince McMahon do his thing. Even though Vince McMahon's thing was raiding his wrestlers and doing everything he could to run Jim Crockett out of business, which he eventually did, uh, Bill Watts would have fought back. Bill Watts absolutely did fight back. He would get on his television network and criticize the WWF and actually make fun of them. And I think that was the only way to win the war. He went out and pointed out their weaknesses. He would say things like, you know, junkyard dog left mid South wrestling because the competition was too tough for him here. And he went somewhere where it's a lot easier. It's a lot softer. And he would show uh, video clips of King Kong Bundy doing jobs when he was right before um, WrestleMania. So I, I think Bill Watts more, aggressive approach would have been more successful so with that said another big addition to georgia championship wrestling late summer 1983 was jake roberts let's hear from jake roberts now did you enjoy it gordon did you enjoy the little film clip i'm sure everyone at home did it's just a little something to show you what i'm really like and you know something I didn't do this to myself. Everyone out there helped me be what I am today. My mother, my father, they all drove it right into me, telling me, are you going to grow up and be a good boy, Jake? I don't think so. 
I always love that Jake Roberts interview where he blamed everybody else. I am the way I am because it's the way the world made me. Uh, Jake Roberts had been a babyface star in Mid-South Wrestling in the early 80s, 80 and 81. He was North American champion. And then he shows up in Florida as Kevin Sullivan's disciple in 1982 into 1983. And now he is on his own in Georgia Championship Wrestling. And it was really the first step towards Jake Roberts becoming the successful, hugely successful pro wrestler that he became. Now we're going to hear an, an altercation between King Kong Bundy and Ernie Ladd. One man thinking he's going to beat King Kong Bundy. I should have had two men in that ring. Nobody can beat the great Bundy, especially any one man. I still got $1,000 cash money in my pocket to anybody that can pick up 420 pounds and slam it to the mat. I don't care who it is, Dusty Rhodes, Andre the Giant, and now the big cat Ernie Ladd coming back to try and get a piece of King Kong Bundy. Well, let me tell you something, lad. You're making a big mistake, boy. You were a great football player, but when I put the five can on you, nothing in football is going to be able to help you. You're going to be like a big king on them. What do you want? Oh, oh, get out of here. It's more than any man can take you down, big fella. I'm warmed up right now. Let's send it right now, lad. Well, you haven't said nothing, my friend. Ernie, Ernie, no. Wait wait a minute, Ernie. Find more place, believe me. What do you mean, now's at the time out of place? This man's got a lot of hot air coming out of choking out of the side of his neck. Yink, yink, yink. Yunk, yunk, yunk. The only thing right now I need to do is get in there. But they told me about the rules and the regulations that I can't go in the ring because they know I'm excited. I'm acting when I come out here. I want to get a hold of you loud, mouth. Look at the referee. Can I get him out right now? He's got nothing but a loud mouth. If he was any kind of man, he'd be ready for me. Just like I'm ready for him. Well, I'll tell you what. Obviously, when these two do meet, there's going to be a monumental explosion. Let me tell you something, Mr. Mr. TV announcer, always remember one thing. A man inside, big and powerful. I'm 6'9 and over 300 pounds myself. I'm no Johnny come lately, but a man outside, you got to stop him before he gets started. But see, I'm an old fuck. I'm cagey. If I go in the ring right now, he'd probably kick me coming through right now. Then I'd be mad. He'd have the edge. But when we get there together at the same time, I would have the edge because I'm the smartest. I'm 6'9, over 300 pounds, with a size 17 foot. It hasn't changed, it? And I tell the people, whoever this transpire, you owe it to yourself and get on the telephone and call somebody and tell them that yours truly, Ernie Ladd, is coming. I know you saw the movie said, Val, there's is coming out. Well, Ernie Ladd is coming, and I want me a loud mouth, and the size don't be that, don't matter to me. It can be a biggest Omar the tent maker, it can be tall as the Ivory Tower, it can be down on the ground, but just let a loud mouth show up, and I'll close that loud mouth for him, you know, because I'm no coward. I'll certainly attest to that. I'll guarantee you that much, but thank goodness we didn't have what I was afraid could have happened right here. Wrestling tonight. Oh boy, Ernie Ladd versus King Kong Bundy in 1983 could not have been pretty. I am have always been a big Ernie Ladd fan, but he is 45 years old here, and I know you guys are just hearing the audio, but he looks every minute of it. I remember thinking that in 1983 that Ladd just looked too old. One thing they did here, too, that I didn't agree with, you've got Bundy, who's the heel, 
Uh, Ladd is the babyface. Bundy challenges Ernie, Ernie Ladd to get in the ring, and Bundy jumps in the ring, and he's ready to go. You don't have the babyface saying all the rules and regulations say I can't get in there. You say, screw that. I'm getting in there and fighting Bundy. So now they kind of dropped a ball a little bit on that one. All right, let's hear now from a Georgia legend, Bullet Bob Armstrong, who is with his son Brad training in what looks like their garage. For the Road Warriors, welcome to Armstrong Avenue, Armstrong's Electric Avenue. What you're looking at now is my son Brad pumping a little iron, and I'm sure the Road Warriors are familiar with pumping iron. My name is Bob Armstrong, and no matter what you've heard about the Armstrongs, when we meet the Road Warriors, there'll be no more Mr. Nice Guy. You know, I've seen film clips of the Road Warriors, and they're big, muscular gentlemen, no doubt about it. And what Brad and I do is come out here and pump iron because we like to be powerful too. We got about 230 pounds a piece and we're packed right and tight. As soon as we finish here, we're going to hit out back. We're going to get in that mat and we're going to do what we call agility drills. Up, down, in, out, back, forth, round and round because that's the way to beat the road warriors. Speed and mobility. So we've combined a combination here of agility and power. I've heard the Road Warriors making some bad remarks about the Armstrong team, something about decapitation, pulling off limbs. Well, what are you going to do with a tree trunk, brother? That don't look like a limb to me, and these ain't exactly toothpicks hanging on Brad's shoulders. One thing about it, from what I've seen of you boys wearing them black slick leather britches, a good old All-American right cross, when your fanny hits that mat, you liable to slide third row ringside. And one thing I want you to know about the Armstrong right off the bat, that we're a couple of southern-bred, southern-born, thoroughbred race horses. And one thing you definitely ought to know is that jackasses don't run with race horses. So remember this. Like I said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Armstrong, Bullet Bob, Bad News Brad, we will see you soon. Then there'll be no more bull jobbing, no more talking about this and that. We'll be action, nose-to-nose and toes-to-toes. And our motto is, sticks and stones may break your bones, but we're going to do our best to break your head. Right, Brad? That's exactly right. You know, like you've always said and you've always taught me, Dad, they're big and bad, but they can be had. Amen, brother. See you soon. Great interview by Bob Armstrong. And Brad plays his role well. But at the same time, I mean, I'm looking at this, watching this in 1983. I'm like, okay, I don't know how old this guy is, but... He has a son who has been active in pro wrestling since at least 1981, so he's got to be kind of old, either that or he was having kids really young. It turns out it was a combination of both. But, I mean, in 1983, I think the average person watching Georgia Championship Wrestling is going to look at the Road Warriors and then look at Bob and Brad Armstrong and... Just come to the conclusion that the Armstrongs are not going to have a chance against these guys. That was what I was saying in 1983, at least. All right, now let's hear from the the 1983 sensation, the Road Warriors. Again, if we're anytime we're using audio like this on Stick to Wrestling, it's for review purposes only. Let's hear from the Road Warriors. Armstrongs, are you ready for the wrath of the Warriors? Because when you enter the four corners of doom, it's going to be pain. Go on, right, brother? That's right. Tonight, we're in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then in the Omni, Mr. Soley, Armstrong, you bring your little pencil neck arms. That's right. And you bring your martial art experts down here. Let me tell you something, gay. You in a battle, you got with the warrior. Very frank.
A quick one from the Road Warriors. Again, hard to describe what a huge splash they made in pro wrestling in 1983. As a matter of fact, I have a question from Cow Palace Dave. Was the arrival of the Road Warriors also the beginning of the end for beer belly wrestlers being over? Uh, no, I would say that the beginning of that, the beginning of the end of that might have been superstar Billy Graham. Uh, it, and then you get into the Kerry Von Erichs of the world, the Hulk Hogan's of the world. It was becoming more and more of a physique based business. But I think that ball had gotten rolling uh, before the Road Warriors had debuted. And with that, we had a surprise. In summer of 1983, uh, Buzz Sawyer was the lead heel running wild on television. And all of a sudden, this man made an appearance on television in one of the best vignettes ever. Um, I don't have the vignette uh, here for the show. I posted it on the Facebook group a few, I want to say like a month, maybe six weeks ago. But someone remind me to post it again. It was absolutely crazy. Roddy Piper reappears on Georgia and is looking for the mad dog. But let's hear this interview from the legendary Roddy Piper. Cincinnati, Cincinnati, I'm just hanging around. You see, they wanted it in L.A. They wanted it in Frisco. They wanted it in Atlanta, brother. You say, you say, you want a rematch. You want to try the dog callers one more time? I'm telling you tonight. I'm talking a few hours away. You want to try it, brother? Cincinnati's a spot check. And until that time, two more hours, I'm just going to keep hanging around. Cincinnati. A crazy Roddy Piper promo where he has a, a logger's chain around his neck and he is hanging himself with it. Um, Roddy Piper, when Roddy Piper returned to Georgia, um, you know, they don't have every attendance figure at the Omni, but they are generally doing around 3,000 or 4,000 uh, in the crowd. And when Roddy Piper came back to fight Buzz Sawyer, it immediately jumped up to 9,000. So, yes, who you have on the show is relevant. And Roddy Piper popped the crowd, and we all know about Roddy Piper. It's summer of 1983 now. In six months, he'd be up in the WWF further, carving out his legend. And also making a surprise appearance or an occasional appearance in Georgia Championship Wrestling was Jimmy Valiant. You know, going back to Jamie's question, it was I'd, I'd love to get the real story about what happened with Ole Anderson and Joe Blanchard, how it didn't last, why it looked like, you know, Ole may have been seceding from the NWA. I mean, you know, Joe Blanchard is recognizing Adrian Adonis as his world's heavyweight champion. And on Georgia Championship Wrestling, they did not acknowledge Ric Flair losing the NWA championship to Harley Race. Uh, he, he lost it on June 10th, 1983, and it was not acknowledged until October of 1983. So something weird was going on, but at the same time, as soon as the Joe Blanchard alliance disappeared, Ole started relying heavily on taped footage from Mid-Atlantic Wrestling and Mid-South Wrestling. So like I said, we'll never know what happened there, but uh, Jimmy Valiant is making a an appearance. He's being borrowed from the Carolinas. Let's hear from Jimmy Valiant. When I get the letter, Georgia, that be bonus quality. Cause of a whole town jubilee. Blood gonna flow like white. Gary, how you didn't run nobody out, brother? You a kabuki, just of a cabbage. 
I come right there, brother, and kick some cans. I understand there's some mean, tough dudes right there. I'm talking about the warriors, the road warriors. I'm talking about some street brothers of mine right there in Atlanta, Georgia. Tommy Rich, my brother, and Mr. Pez Wadley. These are street brothers. These are people I get down with. Boogie woogie with. Press. Take them on, brother. You don't sell don't sale on my street people. All my brothers, sisters, Atlanta, Georgia. Look how you ain't seen nothing yet. I want to say something right now, brother. When I get there, I'm going to kiss and hug every person I see in that arena. And we're going to get down and we're going to party. We're going to do it together. Went to a honky tonk and just see the other night. Said I got jealous that you sat in a pie. Cold, I was dancing with the Mary Lou. She called Boogie Woogie to the rescue. Well, feel good, brother. I want to tell you something, buddy. I'm coming at you. I said I'm coming at you, baby, and I want to show you something. Santa Claus. I want to ask everybody something. Can you imagine if Ric Flair or Gino Hernandez, if he survived, someone like that, in his 40s, reinvented himself as the boogie-woogie man Ric Flair or the boogie-woogie man Gino Hernandez? Because that's pretty close to what Jimmy Valiant did. Just an amazing transformation. I mean, his career was on its rear end uh, towards the be- in the beginning of the 80s. Uh, he had a somewhat disappointing run in the WWF in 1979 with, with the Valiant brothers. He got sick, and they had to bring in Jerry Valiant. And now the promoters were not, you know, the Valiant brothers seemed to have been either done or close to it. And Jimmy Valiant reinvented himself as the boogie-woogie man, kind of a, a town drunk Karen character, and it worked. He was employed most of the 80s and making good money and good for him. He, everyone who knows him says he's a really nice guy. Now, around this time, summer of 1983, Georgia Championship Wrestling, especially the Sunday show, were showing clips from a promotion called Georgia Championship Wrestling. Not World Championship Wrestling. It was shot from a television studio in Chattanooga. And it featured some of the wrestlers from Memphis. I later learned that Memphis hired too many wrestlers when they thought that Lawler and Jarrett were going to split. And frankly, these guys needed something to do. So for about a month, maybe six weeks, they were working this weird satellite promotion. And one of the top stars was Superstar Bill Dundee. And let's hear from Superstar Bill Dundee now. Great, I bet all them little ladies when they saw that, it doesn't matter if it was in Marietta, if it was in Macon, if it was Atlanta, GA, if it was in Columbus, it doesn't matter where it was, all them little hearts were fluttering. Well, I'm going to be there in person, folks. Wherever you see Bill Dundee's name, the superstar's name, you can bet he's going to be there. Because when I'm Boots Freddie Miller, I show up, and it doesn't matter who my opponent is, I just demolish him. Now, all you little ladies out there, you look at this television screen, I can tell your little hearts just a fluttering. You'd like to see this guy in person. Is he as pretty in person as he is in real life? Well, you bet he is. He's better looking in real life than he is on television, and I'll see you folks all over the state. Thank you. Well, you can find out for yourself when you meet. Okay, and we were talking about the satellite promotion uh, shot out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Didn't last very long and was, well, it was it looked entertaining enough, although you couldn't really get the feel from it because they didn't show full highlights. They just showed a you know, match every now and then and interviews from certain stars. One of the people who were part of that promotion was the now legendary Jim Cornette. Let's hear from a very young Jim Cornette who is managing the French Angel and Jerry Novak. Bill Superstar Daddy, let's meet Jimmy Cornette and his dynasty of wrestlers. That's exactly right. Let's meet me. Where did you get that tie, Freddie Miller? Well, uh, don't worry about it. 
the best of world championship wrestling. That's exactly why we're here, because I am the best manager, and these two men are part of the greatest group in professional wrestling, the dynasty of champions that I manage. The angel, the man that doesn't care, and Jerry Novak, the bounty hunter. And whether it be Augusta, Georgia, whether it be anywhere in the state of Georgia or anywhere that we appear, you can be assured of one thing. We are winners. We do win matches. And that's what we're concentrating on right now is the state of Georgia. Because we're going to bring you people matches the likes of which you have never seen before. This, the greatest tag team of all time. At this, the most fearsome weapon in professional wrestling, the claw. The angel and the claw is back. So don't forget it. Thank you. And Jimmy, I want to thank your mother for the tie. Let me tell you where wrestling will be this week. Tomorrow. Thanking Jimmy's mother for the tie. You, you you could already tell that Jim Cornette was going places in the wrestling business. And, I mean, out there trying to put Jerry Novak and the French Angel over as the greatest tag team on earth. Um, but, yeah, unfortunately, he didn't last long uh, there. He would remain in Memphis until 1983 uh, when he went to Mid-South Wrestling. And I cannot recommend Jim Cornette in Mid-South Wrestling enough. It's on Peacock. I think he was even better there than he was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or JCP. And with that, um, we have an interesting segment here. Ronnie Garvin explains what's going on. Uh, We're showing clips of the post-match incident that happened between Ronnie Garvin and the Iron Sheik from the Omni. Again, anytime we do audio here, audio clips on Stick to Wrestling, it's for review and educational purposes only. Let's hear from Ronnie Garvin. Uh, some verification and some uh, description so that all of you will become aware of the national television championship and the situation involving uh, uh, Ronnie Garvin. And you know, Gordon, I like to share this with the people. I like to see. I like the fans to see what happened. You know, I said I was going to beat the the Sheik, and I did. And I like the fans to watch this film here. What happened at the Omni the last time I wrestled the Sheik? Okay, I'll tell you what, uh, we've had so many requests from so many of you all around the country asking that we uh, try and bring you some action from the Omni occasionally, so that's exactly what we're doing. We've already brought you one piece now. Here comes another one, and uh, it does concern the National Television Championship. So let's uh, swing over to the monitor here, uh, Ronnie, and I'll let you uh, describe uh, exactly what's taking place. Well, you can see the referee raised my hand in victory. I outmaneuvered him, and I got a one, two, three count, and uh, I was supposed to beat the Sheik in less than 10 minutes. The belt was at stake only for the first 10 minutes, and uh, at this point here, I beat him in 11 minutes. I was one minute over time, but I didn't realize that. When the referee raised my hand, I was sure that I was the proud owner of that uh, new world t- television title match and this beautiful trophy, and I've got it in my hand, and uh, at this point, like I said before, I think I'm the winner. I didn't know it was 11 minutes. And uh, the Sheik and Paul Ellering are arguing, and uh, the referee is telling me to give the trophy to Paul Ellering. Well, I didn't want to give the trophy because I've got the desire to win, and when you go out there and you work hard and you sweat and sweat the blood, and somebody tells you, you're not the winner, I won the match, but I didn't want the trophy. The trophy is what I want. Being the world television champion, it's a prestigious belt, and that's exactly what I'm after, and sooner or later I will get it. And here I decided to take upon myself, if I'm not going to have it, nobody's going to have it, and I put the boots to the trophy, as you can see, I destroyed it, and the Sheik and Paul Ellering are pretty upset about it. Well, I was upset myself, because like I said, I won the match, I didn't win the trophy, I am not the new television champion. And I understand that Paul Ellering didn't want to give another rematch, he doesn't want the Sheik to wrestle me. Well, it's all right with me. But I understand now he's changed his mind. He's going to give me one last match. One last match. So being the last match, it means I've got to take advantage of this. Being the last match, Paul Ring, you give me greater desire. 
I have, I'm burning with desire, and I'm going to make it count this time. I'm going to do it in, inside of 10 minutes. Fair enough. Thank you so very much. I know, once again, we only have the audio available for you, but it was absolutely hilarious seeing Ronnie Garvin doing the Garvin stomp to this four-foot trophy that represented the National Television Championship. And the second I laid eyes on that trophy, I knew it was just a matter of time, and tonight was the night that that trophy got destroyed. Once again, I have a problem with the booking here. Ronnie Garvin... You know, you win the title, the television title, if you can beat the Iron Sheik within 10 minutes. He was not able to do that. And Garvin, who is the babyface, decides that if he can't have the trophy, no one can have the trophy. And he destroys the trophy. That is not a babyface move, people. Let's hear from Paul Ellering and the Iron Sheik. Let's hear their retort to Ronnie Garvin. Oh, yes, Ronnie Garvin. The lights are on, but nobody's home. You are a crazy individual, and I am refusing, after the match at the Omni, to ever let the Sheik wrestle you again, Ronnie Garvin. This is your last opportunity, and I've told the Iron Sheik, I've told the Iron Sheik to beat you like he beats his own dog, and then at the end of the match, make you pay homage to the Iranian play. The video was hilarious. The Iron Sheik is sitting there with a large card cardboard box that contains the remnants of what was once his uh, tel- world television title trophy. Again, looking very forlorn and Paul Ellering saying what he had to say. Paul Ellering was just on TV way, way too much in 1983. Like if, if he was as good as Jim Cornette or Jimmy Hart, I would say that. And he was nowhere near as good as one of those guys. One last question, Mark Hurtwick. It may have happened pre-1983, but at what moment do you think the Georgia Championship Wrestling promotion, quote, jumped the shark, unquote? I personally think it's when killer Tim Brooks defeated Paul Orndorff for the national heavyweight title and immediately sold it to Larry Zbysko heading into the summer of 83. Yeah, I think spring, early summer of 1983, they were obviously having a lot of problems and and. Killer Brooks being brought in as this superstar who Larry Zbysko handpicks to win the national championship for him uh, was a real, just a long shot. It was, it was difficult, really difficult to believe. Nothing against Brooks, but he just was not at that level, and it was hard not to know that. Uh, finally, last piece of audio, and I hope you've all enjoyed this, is Wild Bill Irwin. Let's hear from him now. People out there, now I know you know who I am, but I'm going to tell you one more time. My name is Wild Bill Irwin, and I've come to this area to become the top dog, number one dog, and let me tell you, I've got the talent to do it. I'm going in the ring right here, right now, and I'm just going to show you. Well, indeed. Wow, not much audio there, but I did want to talk about Wild Bill Irwin. I thought he was a guy that should have been a way bigger star than he was. I have no idea why the WWF didn't have a spot for him. I have no idea why JCP never had a spot for him until 1989. Um, I think he could have been pushed, you know, certainly not as a challenger to Hulk Hogan or anything like that, but... 
I think once again, his, his talent was greater than his push. And when he finally found a great gimmick, he did the long riders gimmick with his brother, Scott Holler, uh, Scott Hogg Irwin, excuse me. Not long after that, Scott got brain cancer and passed away and the gimmick never got off the ground. I think they would have been big in either the WWF or uh, world championship wrestling, the NWA. When I say big, I mean, I think they could have had a run with the WWF Tag Team Championships. I, I thought they were that good. So Georgia, you know, it was a down period in the summer of 83. And, I mean, they did weird stuff. Like they had Larry Zabisco wrestling Pez Whatley on TV. And all of a sudden, Larry Zabisco announces that Killer Brooks is going to be the referee. And instead of the promotion saying, no, 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 it's like, oh, well, okay, he's the ref. And they did something interesting where Killer Brooks calls the match right down the line. Didn't show any favoritism to either side. The match went to a 10-minute draw, and then Killer Brooks declares Larry Zabisco the winner. I thought that was kind of cool, even though the the angle was illogical. And then later in the show, Mr. Wrestling 2 is wrestling Killer Brooks, and Mr. Wrestling 2 uh, gives these guys a taste of their own medicine by declaring that Tim Woods, Mr. Wrestling number 1, uh, was going to be his referee. And again, the, there's no logic to this, and I remember just being on the couch shaking my head, uh, and again, I'll, I'll underline, underline that I watched every week. They didn't run me off, but it was way better in 1982. And it would get better because Ted DiBiase, Jake Roberts, etc. were now part of the promotion. I hope everyone enjoyed this show. Uh, usually we have a guest, but we had difficulty with scheduling this week. So I hope you all bore with just me talking about this stuff. Things change in 1984 because there's a lot more audio out there. I have a lot of Florida from 1984, a lot of Memphis from 1984. Uh, so you'll be here. I have a, I think I have every Georgia show from 1984. So we'll be hearing more of shows like this. I hope you enjoy it. If you are part of the Facebook group, uh, please remind me to put up the uh, looking for looking for the Mad Dog video so everyone can see that it was great. Um, and with that, that that ends this week's episode of stick to wrestling i want to thank everyone for listening i want to thank lou kippelman for all the great work he does especially this week lou is in las vegas enjoying a vacation except he took two hours to record this today we had some technical issues that wound up having us recording uh, an hour later than scheduled and he's got to do the hour show so lou you are appreciated i want to thank brian last for giving me this forum and once again i want to thank everyone for listening uh this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network go vols beat virginia This concludes our podcast day.